Happy to welcome to Forward Guidance, Andrew Beer, Managing Member of Dynamic Beta Investments. Andrew, great to have you on Forward Guidance. I want to, Dynamic Beta, uh, why beta? Isn't everyone trying to pursue alpha in this world? Why, why are you focusing on beta? That's, that's, that's a good question. So actually, we just changed our name to DBI uh, officially as of, as of last week. You know, I think people often talk about alpha and beta being separate. You know, beta is the cheap, easy thing that anybody can get, whereas alpha is this esoteric thing. The reality is they're 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 interconnected. You know, if you if you buy equities at the right time or you buy bonds at the right time, uh, you can generate an enormous amount of alpha through those kinds of regular decisions over time. So for us, dynamic beta, what it really meant was that if you want to understand how hedge funds are making money, um, then the thing you want to understand what their beta exposures are because they change over time. So the guys who, you know, who liked value stocks before might like tech stocks now, they might like emerging market stocks later. It's really trying to understand that. And so our business is really built around the idea of you, you want to find the right betas at the right time and invest in them. And then we have a particular way of approaching that. Right. So what you do at DBI is pretty complicated, but my understanding is it's, it's liquid alternatives and you're taking what hedge funds do and delivering it, replicating it with a much lower fee structure. So my first question is, did I, did I get that right? And the second question is, how do you do that? Because these hedge fund people, you know, they're supposed to, you know, they went to the right schools, they're all smart, they've all got Bloomberg terminals. So how can you, you know, that's at least the narrative. So how, how do you replicate and beat them? And you beat them by, uh, you know, charging much less. Yeah. So we do something called hedge fund replication, which is, it's actually a really simple idea, which is that if you can identify what these hedge funds are doing, but you can do the same thing that they're doing, but do it more cheaply, you do better over time. You know, it's, it's you, you, you get the same quality of what they're doing. Um, but, and then what we try to do is then also deliver it in ETFs in Europe, we deliver it in the versions of mutual funds. And so as a result, you know, what you want is, is people to, you want to take the good things that hedge funds are doing, but then simply repackage it in a simple and straightforward, um, easy to access way. And so um, it, this only works in certain circumstances. There are a lot of things that hedge funds do that are truly esoteric. But I've been in the hedge fund industry for nearly 30 years. It's not that mysterious. <laughs> like you, it, it, A lot of people try to frame it as mysterious because it's great for justifying high fees and things. But you talk to actual hedge funds about what they do. And, and a lot of times it's, it's, it's pretty damn simple. So what is it? The, the great advantage hedge funds have is that they are, um, uh, they're less constrained, that they can change their minds. Um, and, and so, so the really fascinating thing about the asset management industry is that the whole industry is built to move slowly. You know, if you go talk to your financial advisor and your financial advisor is going to give you a 10-year plan, you know, and we're going to own this much S&P and this much these things. And, and, you know, as though anybody has any clue what these things are going to do over the next 10 years. But the whole ethos of it is we're the steady hand at the wheel. And, and so you get to the end of 2021 and the steady hands at the wheel, all were betting that rates would stay low forever. And so, boom, inflation starts to come back. What did they do? Nothing at first, right? At first, they have to say, oh, no, 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 it's, it's you know, it's, it's ephemeral. It's the ports in LA. It's this, it's that. It's all these different things. And, and so, you know, so people didn't believe inflation was coming back because they needed to believe it wasn't coming back. Because they told their clients the year before it wasn't coming back, and they're not supposed to change their mind every year. Hedge funds can. And so a lot of hedge funds in early 2022 said, oh, this is getting real. 
And so, so they did some things. They said, you know, we're not going to own bonds anymore. We're going to short treasuries and bet that rates are going up. Um, uh, you know, the U.S. is going to keep raising rates. That's going to have all sorts of impacts in the currency and other markets. So, so, so the alpha, you know, this thing that we all want um, that comes from active management is often because people change their mind. And, and the thing is, most of us, most of the asset management industry in general, like you think about the pension plan down the street. You know, they don't change their mind every quarter in their portfolios. They want to put things in and not change it for the next 10 years. But about 20% of the time, the world changes a lot faster. And that those are the times like 2022 where you really need certain hedge fund strategies that, that, that can adapt to those market conditions. So, yeah, I am familiar with the chase the you know, the, the horse that just won the last race type of strategy that's familiar, you know, on, on financial networks, it's, it's familiar with financial strategists. And I'm sure, you know, it's, it's familiar with, with asset allocators. And I'll give the perfect example is not a lot of people were talking about floating rate strategies. I mean, I'm sure they were, but not a lot in 2021. And now everyone wants to floating rate strategies, but it's like, guys, you, you missed it. It's it rates are at 5.5%. The time to get into floating rate strategies was was two years ago. And, oh, you know, growth has been, you know, outperforming everyone. Everyone is always chasing um, performance. I, I suppose uh, one narrative is uh, Peter Lynch, you know, fantastic investor, mutual fund manager. So much of the money went into Peter Lynch's fund right after, you know, they just had a phenomenal year. And so actually the, the realized returns of, of the managed, you know, dollar was, was much less than the returns of um, the fund, if it, if it didn't have those hot, you know, uh, inflows, inflows and outflows, there are a lot of you know, anecdotes of folks who you know, made over 100% last year, or you know, 30%, 40% last year, shorting treasuries, going long oil, uh, all sorts of strategies that are, you know, there's a lot of volatility last year, and a lot of room for outperformance, just because the range of outcomes was so wide. But have hedge fund managers, and I, I, it matters how you define the hedge fund community, have they we know they have you know, underperformed the market, including their very high fees. But have they outperformed the market if you, uh, w- without fees at all? Um, because even though you could say, oh, yes, these hedge fund managers, they're so prescient. They went out of large cap stocks and they did these strategies. Haven't a lot of those alternative strategies underperformed over the past decade when the real thing to do was just go to sleep? Oh, absolutely. Right. And that's and right. I mean, so, I mean, the genius trade, right? If you wanted to be one of the best performing hedge funds out there, you would have loaded up on NASDAQ in 2010 and gone home and charged people 20% a year for that, which frankly kind of, I mean, you look actually a lot of hedge funds kind of actually look like that. And those guys, you know, are now multi-billionaires. The issue of changing performance, it's, it's just, it's, it's wired into us, right? It's, it's exciting, right? You feel like you found, because, because again, the whole, I think, I think if you're thinking about investing, right, investing is not something that is, um, uh, that's that that's cold and objective. That that happens on paper. Objective. It's it's a it's a very emotional experience. And and you talk to your financial advisor, and your financial advisor is is trying to assure you that I can help you grow your money between now and when you die or when you retire with the least stress amount along along the way. You know, we've got this chart that we show where we say, hey, we've got a, you know, we love this particular hedge fund strategy. It can statistically have a big impact on your portfolio. And I show kind of these charts, these kind of statistically inclined charts on it. And then I say, I will tell you that there is not a single client in America who hugged their advisor after 20 years for raising their sharp ratio. Right. And so, so 
when you're thinking about investment opportunities and you're thinking about, you know, why people make the decisions they've been, it's, it's yes, there's an economic side to it, but it's the other side that's really powerful. And so what happened, if you just think about the past few years, in early 2022, people couldn't believe that inflation was in because it required them to go to their clients and say, hey, that stuff I told you six months ago was wrong. I'm changing my mind. Remember, I was only putting you into tech stocks because those were going to be the best opportunities. I've got all these FANG stocks. Uh, they'll never go down when interest rates are zero. Uh, I'm buying 10-year uh, AA rated bonds for you with a 1.5% yield, and you should be happy about it. Right? And so, so, so six months later, that's looking really scary for people. I criticize it, but I think, I think one of the best things that's been done on the asset management side and the wealth management side is actually the growth of these stable model portfolios. Um, that that you know because because they are they are designed to help that person say you know I've got a five percent allocation in emerging markets not doing doing well this month they shouldn't be tinkering in it and selling it and buying it or moving in and out of funds etc but um, so it, it it's a really really positive force about eighty percent of the time but twenty percent of the time they're pointing in the same direction when everything's gone the wrong way and that's what happened last year stocks and bonds both went down. And the most interesting thing right now, right, is that we've gone through this, you know, everybody, you and I and everybody else has grown up in this world where stocks and bonds hedge each other. One goes up this year, then the other one goes down. In 2000, in 2000 through 2002, equities go down, you know, 50%. Bonds soar during that period of time. And you get a smoother ride. In 2008, equities get crushed again. Bonds don't really go up a lot, but they don't go down a lot either. Last year, they both go down. Yeah. So, so what do you do when you're sitting in front of a client and say, how do I give you a smoother ride? And the old playbook is now a scary roller coaster. And clients don't want a scary roller coaster. But what do you do when all of your tools, all of your diversification tools that used to kind of offset each other now seem to be moving up and down? They all went up in January. They all went down in February. They all went up last month. Maybe they'll go down or they all went down last month. Maybe they'll go up again this month. And so, so there's, a, it's, there, there's an existential crisis on the wealth management side in terms of how do you plan for the next 10 years? And people aren't talking about it nearly as much as they, as they should because I think people were basically, you know, I think one of the, one of the when the world changes fast, um, everyone hopes it's not going to stick, right? And so even in the beginning of this year, it's like, Oh, last year was awful. Look what happens to rates. Oh, but don't worry. By the end of this year, we'll be back to the old party. And now we're not. And so as time goes on, it just it's it's sinking into people that, wow, something really, really big has changed. And this is going to reverberate through portfolios, through markets, through all these different things. And 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 I think that's the most fascinating intellectual question today if you're an advisor. So your, your firm is delivering hedge fund returns at a much cheaper price. I, I get that. So my question is, is not really so much to, to challenge that. It's why, why hedge funds at, at all? Like they're, they're, hasn't their track record over the past 10 years not been great? Can you go over, go over the track record of hedge funds you know, since 2000, 2008? Because, I mean, is, is it correct to say it, it has not been, it has been less than stellar? Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's basically, look, the hedge, the hedge fund industry has gone through a very, um, uh, it's gone through a process of institutionalization. Um, but the fees that people pay, it, it, you shoot yourself in the foot. 
right? There, there is a, so well, walk us through the math on that. I wrote a, 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 an editorial for the Financial Times several years ago. 80% of the value creation goes to them, not you. You take 100% of the risk and get 20% of the benefits and 80% of it goes to them. Why? Why do that? Mm -hmm. Right. And so, so there are, if you, but if you look at a hundred of these guys, you can always find the guy who looks unbeatable today. The problem is that guy is your embarrassing, awkward conversation in six months or a year. And so, and so, but, but it persists because a lot of people are in that business, right? They tell their clients, we're going to find the best guy. What they do is they find the guy who was the best. And back to your point about, about Peter Lynch and Magellan, you can say, make the same analysis with ARC. You can do all sorts of different things. So, so, take, so take a step back. So we, we, we're not product sales guys, right? Rather, what we do is we say, hedge funds do a lot of different things. Let's boil it down into, first of all, what do they do that's valuable? And there are some things they do that are really valuable that we can't copy. But there are a couple things they do that are really valuable that we can copy, and let's do that. And so we manage an ETF in the U.S. that was up 23% last year. Not because of us, you know, not, not our great picks and our calls, but because the, the, the underlying managers got inflation right. And so they were up 20, which was amazing. We were up 23 because we were cheaper. Because their up 20 was really up 26, let's say, right? Mm -hmm. And then they took 600 basis points of fees and they all went and bought, you know, yachts from Russian oligarchs who were selling their yachts or something. And, 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 uh, and we went up 23. We didn't do quite as well as they did before fees. But, but, we, um, uh, but, but again, you know, we're charging a quarter of the fees, six of the fees that these guys were charging last year. And so our view is that you know, if you want to be in the space and you want to be happy in five years or 10 years, you got to pick a strategy that's going to really do, it's going to actually have some demonstrable benefit as opposed to something that just looks like a disaster relative to stocks and bonds in the 2010s. So you got to really focus on that. And then you got to find the right way to invest. So that 26% performance of the long short basket, you're saying they charge 600 basis points of fees, and that's 2% management or maybe a little bit less management fees and then the carry of 20% or something like that of the, the carry. So that's why it was 600 basis points because when they do well, they get that, yeah. Yeah, so th this, this is a strategy called managed futures or some people call it as CTAs. And, and basically, it's the, it's the most valuable diversifier uh, that you can, that we think you can put into portfolio if you care about liquidity and stuff like that. So just the, the, the rough characteristics of the strategy Guys who've been doing this for a living over the past 20 years have had no correlation to stocks and bonds. They've had returns of between stocks and bonds, not quite as good as stocks, but better than bonds. And they've had, it hasn't been, and, and they, they went up during, two, during the dot-com crisis. They went up a lot during the GFC and they went up a lot last year. So it is from a diversification perspective, you just say, I'm going to try to construct the right portfolio for the next 10 years, particularly you've, everyone's got two stools. Sorry, two legs of the stool. And by the way, this is a, a credit to Eric McArdle from Simplify for for coming up with this metaphor. He's he's a competitor, but we're kindred spirits in 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 liking the space and trying to find a way to explain it. The problem is you don't have you you haven't had a good third leg to the stool. When you have when you have you know real estate, but then real estate's going up with stocks and bonds. When you've got this, when everything's going up and down together, you effectively have just 
you know, you're, 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 you're buttressing the existing legs of the stool. You're not adding a third leg. Manor Sutras is really a third leg. So it creates your, it, it, it does give you a better chance of having a, of giving your clients a staple ride, not a scary roller coaster, but a, a smoother ride because it kicks in when you need it the most. Um, but it's also a very challenging space to to invest in and and to describe, which is why we came at it from a very different perspective. Yeah, and so your your ETF that was up twenty three percent that was long short or managed futures or are they the same thing? No, so it's it's just managed futures. Managed futures. Um, uh, I, I just wrote a, a, a yeah, paper on this yeah. in in um, an institutional investor, um, and these guys build wave detectors, right? They are a they are a much smarter modern version of those chartists who would say this thing is breaking out and therefore it's going to keep going up. Okay. So, so, so so they they hopefully apply a bit more math to it and try to come up with, but, but what they do is they build these wave detectors, right? And so what happens is, is when, when, when prices move, I mentioned this very human response, right? So you bought a stock yesterday at a hundred, forget it stock. Let's say you bought crude oil, right? And you bought it at 75, you bought a, you know, an ETF that does it. And three weeks later, it's at 85, right? A lot of people are going to sell it, cut back. When I was managing portfolios, it's so hard not to take chips off the table because I just bought it lower from here and I can totally see it coming back, going back to that level. So what these guys do is is they basically kind of scan the markets and they're looking for these kind of the beginning of waves. And, And so when interest rates start going up, they detect it early and they jump on it. When the dollar started to get strong, they jump on it. When equity started to go down, they jump on it. And so they're not first into the trade, but they tend to ride it a lot longer than a normal human being can, can, can ride it. So it's a little bit different from equity long short. The reason it's called futures is because if you want to bet that crude oil prices are going up, it's a really bad idea to go buy barrels of crude oil and put them in your garage. <laughs> so go, go just, you buy a futures contract, you buy an ETF. But but the way these guys are set up is basically, you know, if you want to bet that oil is going up or you want to bet it's going down, right? Waves go up or down, then 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 this is the way that we implement it. And so in 2015, we basically said this is the best damn strategy we've seen from a diversification perspective, and it's one of the worst strategies to actually try to get to make into a good investment for a variety of reasons. So let's try to build a better way to do it. So Andrew, you know, I feel like I begin, began to half understand what managed futures are, like the 40th time that I heard the term. <laughs> so I feel like for folks who are hearing it for the first time, and there are definitely are folks listening to this, yeah, we, we need to catch them up. So basically, stocks and bonds, other things correlate, commodities, gold. But when people say commodities, a lot of that is long-only commodities. So what, you're going to buy some sort of basket of wheat and copper, and you know, a lot of time you're paying roll cost if it's in contango. And you know who knows? You're, it's dependent on the regime. Managed futures is going long c- cotton, going short coffee, all sorts of stuff, and it's just mathematical and com- computerized. And it it kind of sounds too good to be true, but I know that the back test and, and looking at the history, it is quite good in terms of not just the performance, which are you know less than stocks, but when you combine them with uh, stocks and bonds, it actually has a, a you know a very good uh, statistically shown uh, benefit, right? So how is it kind of? How is that kind of possible? Where where is the the alpha? You know, right. So so it, it goes back to this idea that that the that this business is designed to move slowly and it's run by human beings, right? So so and and I, and I would just say I just make a point about managed futures. The guys who've gone into the managed futures space are technical, and they want to talk to to guys who are technical. 
right? It is, it is, they are engineers by training. And so they want to describe things like contango and, you know, roles and this and that other things. I find that totally uninteresting from an investment perspective, because, because to me, it's about, as you say, why should this thing do well over time? And why, and, 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 and how is it good for me? And, and, and in a sense, but the, but the people in the space, um, this whole space has been on a 30-year path toward commoditization, right? These guys are using computers to figure out whether futures contracts are going up or down. Who knew how to do that in the 1990s, early 1990s? You know, like when I started at, at, at this firm called Baupost, I mean, you couldn't get, it's really hard to get good data. You had Bloomberg, but even getting the Bloomberg. So, so it was this esoteric area where some people went into it. Today, it's pretty commoditized. But the fee structure, like I mentioned about hedge funds, where still a lot more of it goes to them than, than we wanted when we were looking at investing in the space. Um, so, but, but, but the reason it generates um, uh, uh, its value additive to your portfolio over time is because it's going to react in a way that your financial advisor is not going to react. Your financial advisor, first of all, is not going to bet on crude oil collapsing 20% over the next six months. Right. So that's it's something they they can bet on that. And it's it's, it's making air, money in areas that you wouldn't otherwise invest in yourself. And but what they really make the big money is when the world changes faster than 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 advisors, model allocators, et cetera, can react. Because it's it's really hard to go back to your client and and tell them that you think the world may have changed and you're going to make a wholesale change in your portfolio. So, you know, so, so I, I go back to you, Jack, and I say, I say, um, okay, so I know last December we told you and we showed you data that showed that 60% of economists in October, in, in, in September thought that there would be no rate hikes next year. Um, you know, I know we told you it was transitory. We know told you this. It's going to be disrupted away. There's never, inflation's never coming back. Well, we've totally changed our mind. We're selling all of our bonds. We're selling our growth stocks. We're buying. We're shorting stocks. bonds. Yeah. We're shorting bonds. We're doing all this other stuff. You're going to be like, God, that's really, really, really interesting. I'd like my money back now, please. Because you've lost your mind, right? You're not the steady hand at the wheel anymore. I'm supposed to be the one, or as I should say, you know, that you as the client are supposed to be the one who's, who, who panics about this stuff. Your advisor is supposed to be the one, the steady hand through the, through, through the seas. So, and now let's say, let's say the advisor does change their mind and they're wrong. You had a great business. You just blew it up, right? You've got clients who, if everybody goes down like last year and you go down, your clients aren't happy, but you're okay. They don't expect you to be a hero. But imagine if everything goes up and you're the guy who's down. You're looking for a new job. And so, so, that's the very, very, very human and structural reason why you have 10% of your portfolio in something that doesn't care what it doesn't. It's, these are computers. They don't have to retract research statements. They don't have to talk to clients. They decide, you know, three, a, a month ago, they decided crude oil was going down. This month, they decide it's going up and they can decide it's going down, down, down again in three months. And, and that nimbleness that ability to change your mind to do it efficiently is a great complement to a portfolio that is slow, slow moving. And it turns out when you look at the returns of it over time, 
the times when it does the best are a year like last year or the great financial crisis. So when you look at this thing over a long period of time, it's an annoying investment 80% of the time because it does a little bit better than cash if in, in hedge funds, right? So if cash is earning five now, next three years, maybe you do 5%, 6% or something. But it's not like a CD, right? They drop 10% in March. They come roaring back a bit. They give it up again. So now the problem, the problem with a strategy as ten percent in March, I think I know this anecdotally because the hot they, they follow the hot trades and the hot trade was shorting rates and then rates absolutely. rallied big time when the Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. Yeah. Of course, right? These guys these guys hate if you like waves, you hate whipsaws, mm-hmm. right? You hate and that's why they hated a lot of the late two thousand tens was because every time, you know, the markets would really start to get you know get the markets are really starting to go down, the Fed would step in, or something would happen. the The way to think about the strategy is that it makes your life better. Because it does things that you're not going to do on your own. Now, when I mentioned being annoying 80% of the time, the problem is, is, is for, you know, you're on a golf course with a guy who's your client. And he says, oh, you know, what's that thing in there? That's a 5% allocation. And how come my equities are up 15% and this thing is down five? It's hard to explain. It's hard to explain. And so, and, but, th- but this is, I think, the point you said. Like, if you then say, oh, because there was a, a sharp reversal in the wheat markets and blah, 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 and so da, 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 da. Like, and if I'm a client, I'm like, why am I bothering with that? Right? I mean, this is just stressing me out to what's in there. Yeah. And for the advisor, it's often stressful because it, how is that comforting? Right? You buy, you buy cheap value stocks and they go down. There's a great narrative around it. Oh they're getting God, cheaper. I, they're cheaper, right? Dirt cheap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, That's why they can be so tough. Four times cash flow. You know, it's yeah. like everyday low pricing. You know, you you buy growth stocks that go through a hit, and everyone can say, "Oh, remember, remember when Apple? I remember when, like, you know, if you bought Amazon at the bottom, yep. you know, yep. you'd be a trillionaire today." And um, and the thing the thing is, like, every other asset class has this great language around it. It sounds great, right? Remember mm-hmm. leverage buyouts? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry, we're private equity now. Mm-hmm. It's private. Maybe you can join our club. It's, 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 I mean, it's, it's you know, uh, uh, hard asset-based lenders, you know, knuckle-dragging, uh, uh, you know, uh, guys who will break your kneecaps, you know, but uh, but they'll lend your small business. Sorry, we're private credit now, right? We're sophisticated. You know, grow, I mean, uh, value stocks used to be called cigar butts. You know, they're, they're, they're so cheap that you've got the worst management team in the world with the worst business and you're still going to make money on it. And, but now it's value stocks. Value is good. Growth is good quality yeah oh i don't invest in expensive stocks i invest in innovation stocks innovation stocks right yeah, everything so, has a brand yeah. and then managed futures okay yeah. like, like like what in that sounds remotely appealing and they said oh oh no we're gonna uh, we, we have a better term for it. we're gonna call it trend following okay well it, it's actually how they make money uh, don't you know a million guys who bought things at the wrong time because the trend was going in, in their favor. It's funny. So when I first talked about this, do you remember um, in Trading Places, the the movie in the 1980s, mm-hmm, there was mm-hmm. that scene where like everyone's like, buy, 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 sell, 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 sell. And so yeah. when I first started talking to people about managed futures, I said, I said like, that's sort of an example of the of the of the emotional nature of the markets. And I realized I was making people really nervous because they weren't thinking that they were Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd controlling it. They thought they were the guys in the pits. You know, who, who are the ones who are getting caught, caught up in it? Because they were thinking about like, you know, 
yeah, well, I, I bought that house at the very peak of the market, or I, you know, I bought that stupid stock after it got up 500%. And, and so trends are not inherently good. You want the good trends. Anyway, so, so one of my, my projects, because um, like, if you look at our ETF, and again, you talk about hedge funds have not been great investments in general because of the fees and other things. When people have tried to put hedge funds into ETFs, it's been a catastrophe. It's been a why? Why? Why is that? Because most things that hedge funds do don't work well in an ETF. Um, you know, if you've got a guy who has some you know deeply illiquid assets, and then you drop him into an ETF, and everyone can see those positions every day, or a guy who owns you know who's, who owns twenty percent, like it's just hedge funds don't want the transparency, the constraints of running it. You you can't invest in a lot of things that they like. So in general, what people have tried to do is say, oh, we'll take this kind of established hedge fund strategy and drop it into an ETF. And no matter how low the bar is for the actual hedge funds, these guys skate way underneath it. How low the, the benchmark is. Yeah, like, like in other words, if hedge funds do five, you know, somehow these guys manage to do two. And so, mm -hmm. and, and it's, it's, so think about replication, which, which I think is unique in the liquid alternative space, is it's blindingly simple. If these guys make 10 in a hedge fund, you're paying four, and the clients are paying four and they're ending up with six. Maybe you can replicate eight or nine with cheap, low-cost instruments and end up with seven or eight as opposed to six. It's it's you're not going to get everything that they do, but but you don't have to when you're that much cheaper. So what we're trying to do is basically, I mean, if you look at our ETF in the managed future space, um, this is an ETF that's that's delivered. 900 basis points of alpha or something relative to the S&P 500 since we launched, since it was launched in, in 2019, that's like millennium Citadel like that, but it's a daily liquid ETF with an 85 basis point expense ratio. We are right now, if you look at the size of the ETF, we are 0.01% of the ETF world. So you have something that if you package it as a hedge fund, should be a $50 billion hedge fund. But in the ETF world, it's people haven't even begun to make these kinds of investments. And part of the reason is this messaging. Mm -hmm. I talk to people who have spent their lives buying ETFs and they have never... A role on a futures contract is an alien concept to them. A futures contract is an alien concept to them. That's pretty bullish, actually. That, like, I... You'd probably want to invest in things that are hard to sell, whereas things that are easy to sell, everyone's in them. You know. Well, so so one one of the things about replication because like like the we have this expression like like you know size is the enemy of performance or asset growth is the enemy of performance in hedge funds. So so like the the great hedge fund strategy du jour has been these multi strategy hedge funds, uh, which are have been the, the, these guys look like magicians. They've basically given you what has looked like a twelve percent CD for the past several years during a period of time when you weren't making any money in your bond portfolio and most hedge funds weren't doing well, right? So you, you may be underperformed the S&P 500, but if, if it's such, such, um, so much lower volatility that the sharp ratio is, is very good. Exactly. I mean, it's, I mean these, these things are, have been unbelievable. But, you know, what I, I just wrote this note that we'll put up next week. Um, kind of some serious questions that people should be asking about it. So one is these guys have all grown massively, 
right? They've all hired tons and tons of people. And you, so you start asking questions. It's like you were so good when you were one fifth the size and you had these great team of guys. Is team 56 really as good as team four? The crazy thing about these things, and and a lot of, you know, I think anybody who wants to be good in the investment business should spend a lot of time looking at history because you have to kind of understand how we got here. So a lot of these, a lot of these um, firms can actually pass through the cost of their employees and their bonuses and their, et cetera, back to their investors. So these funds, when I say it's a 12% CD, they may be making 20 or 24 and taking half. Okay, but now think about how strange that is, right? I'm not bearing the cost of my employees. My the, my investors are. And I see a guy out there who who looks like he's great at what he does. And I and the next guy, we're not footing the bill for it. It doesn't come out of our pocket. Like, there is no better recipe for overpaying. Yeah, you're, you're going to hire uh, people up until they're marginally useless because even someone who's has a tiny bit of value to add, uh, you're not subtracting their salary because the clients are paying for it. And so, and so, so those are the two big issues. And the third big issue is these are very leveraged funds, right? And so they've done so. But sort of an interesting historical note: this is the 25th anniversary of long-term capital. And so, if you want to, if you want to understand risk management in 2023, read about long-term capital because everybody who does risk management and anything on the quant side. You know, grew up reading about this as you know. If you study history, you study World War II. You know, it's you study the Vietnam War, whatever. So, so, um, so the interesting thing about it is is that these these hedge funds, in order to generate those kinds of returns, take a dollar of your capital, turn it into five or ten, and then manage to make a little bit of money on each of those dollars. Take about half themselves, and then leave the rest for you. Okay. And that's, you know, that's like if you looked at like a Goldman Sachs trading business from the 1980s or 1970s, it's the same kind of idea. Like we're going to hire the We're going to have great information, great execution, great borrowing costs, et cetera. We'll make a 30% return on equity. We'll, or we'll make a 40% return on equity. We'll, we'll take half and pay our guys. And everyone is happy. But the prop trading, a lot of that has moved from banks to hedge funds. Exactly. exactly. Right. And Very so part of the structural opportunities, these guys are doing things that those guys, you know, used to do in the past. But, but here's a question, right? If you're leveraged five times. Isn't that sort of a problem today? Your borrowing costs, right? We all know if you were a mediocre real estate investor in the 2010s, you are a rich guy who looks like a genius today. Everybody, private equity firms, like zombie companies, like, like, like people who were borrowing money in the 2010s on size did really well. The question going back to the point that I was saying is like if rates, now if you think rates are actually going to stay where they are, and most hedge funds actually do, right? Most hedge funds think we hit an inflection point. We're in a new world, deglobalization, blah, 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 all these different things. Governments apparently, you know, the restraint in governments has gone out the window, whatever. Um, so, but if that's the case, how does it affect hedge funds who have these huge borrowings, short-term borrowings, basically? Yeah, interest rates at 5.5% make leverage investments much less attractive. And that goes for stocks. It goes for real estate. Uh, interestingly, like if you had a parallel shift in the yield curve, maybe it doesn't for like carry trades or leverage credit investment or banking, but we don't, we have an inverse yield curve. Well, yeah, it's so like, like, like in theory, right. There's like, there's like academic theory is like, well, you know, if, 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 you know, if, 
if what if we do a flat yield curve and everything's at five percent, and then well, of course, my my return on equities is is going to be five percent plus the equity risk premium. So of course, I'm going to get a ten percent you know return on equity over the next ten years. Anybody who's hanging their hat on theory working today really needs to find a different job, right? I mean, we had in the 2010s, right? I mean, bonds were earning, I mean, cash was earning close to zero, like let's say one percent over that period of time, and the S and P was up like thirteen percent a year or something. There's not there's not a person in the world who predicted a ten year period with a twelve percent equity risk premium. You know, a modeler who kind of predicted the world would look like that. Anyway, anyway, so like the tiniest turn has gone the other direction. And so what I basically read, I said like, what's the answer to this? What's the answer you get? Now, the 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 funny thing, maybe not so funny, is that there has been so much demand. People lined up around institutions, lined up around the block to throw money at these guys. That these guys were not only increasing fees, but they got guys to tie up their money. So you tie up your money for five years, and even then, if you want to get out, you can take out maybe five percent a quarter. And as when we're talking with these guys, we're talking about hedge funds that have some kind of vol targeting strategy where they they're going to make that twelve percent CD. They're actually making twenty percent, but they're borrowing at five x. Those are the because hedge fund is like a million different things. So yeah, yeah talking, I, mean, I mean, I mean, they're called yeah. multi strat hedge funds. Yeah, yeah. And you know, the FT has covered them recently. A guy at Bloomberg named Yishan Kumar covers them a lot. This, these are the these are the modern day George Soros's. Ken mm-hmm. Griffin's one guy. Um, you know, Millennium Citadel. These guys. It just seems to follow the kind of historical playbook that when you've got institutions lining up around the block. And then these guys are, you want to invest with hedge fund managers who are rapacious, ruthless capitalists, right? That's, that's, that is their job description. You want them to be that. But they also can be rapacious and ruthless with their clients. And so they've got their clients now to have locked up. Some of them used to be able to get your money out relatively frequently. Now, because of the demand, anybody who stayed is not getting their money back for at least five years. And that's and that's a key problem, Andrew. Because let's say the best, you know, a lot, a lot of tail risk managers who who I, who I like, who I've interviewed, but let's say the best tail risk manager in the world, uh, let's say hypothetically, where they have almost zero bleed, like how much money they make, how much money they lose in bull markets, and then when you have a crash, they make sixty percent or a hundred percent. How much value is that if you're not allowed to rebalance when you the market crashes and your uh, tail risk sleeve of your portfolio goes up? But you have a lock up, right? Isn't the whole point that you're supposed to rebalance on that March 23rd, 2020, when the S and P is at 2300 and the VIX is at 85? But but no one actually does that. And if you're not using an overlay, you literally you're not even allowed to. Or for, you could, you know, it's going to be five years until you see that money, right? Oh, look, I mean, I mean, rebalancing is a nightmare, right? And yeah. and I mean, so, so like the, the thing is, you know, we look back at these periods in history as though we had a clue what was going to happen. I, I can tell you on March 22nd. You know, good luck getting people out from underneath their desks, right? It was, we were in, I mean, the treasury market wasn't, wasn't trading. I mean, we were on this. The market was, was not working. The market was not working, right? I mean, this, this was buy ammo and bottled water and head to the mountains, right? Yep. This was, and toilet paper. And, and, and so, yeah, and, you know, go to uh, Burning Man. So, you know, so we look back at it and we want to believe that we would have known what to do. And, and the reality is, like there are, um, you know, the guy that I worked for this guy, an incredible investor named Seth Klarman, um, mm-hmm. Warren Buffett. Like there are a handful of guys who wait for the day, as Warren Buffett said, when the economic storm clouds dark and it rains bars of gold. Okay. A funny thing happened in 2020. The economic storm clouds bar- 
um, uh, Darkin, gold bar, gold bars coming down, and there are 150 people out there with 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 big tops. It's people have learned to buy dips. People have learned to step in they, to preserve capital. So you know the business will keep changing over time. The reason, again, going back to the strategy, the reason I like it, right, is that is is you need something that can that you can put in your portfolio today and just leave it there right that's the the ideal diversifier if you are a financial advisor is something you can put in your portfolio today talk about it when you want to and never talk about it the rest of the time because you will go through periods where it it may not be fair but you'll go through a period where it's not doing as well as something else in the portfolio and people focus on it but that's really but that's but you know, I know a lot of really, really smart people who gave up on this space in 2020, just before a very good 2021, and a decade of outperformance, 40 points of outperformance, 50 points of outperformance in in uh, in, in 2022. And didn't they do well in 2022 because they were so short oil, or or no? Hey, look, this is and this is sort of in- interesting about replication is that is that we have this thing. It's like get the big trades right. Right. And so they were betting that interest rates would go up through by shorting treasuries. They were long oil in the first quarter. Um, sort of luckily, honestly, that when the Ukraine war hit, they ended up making a lot of profits. Then they kind of struggled with oil the rest of the year. And um, in a world of rising rates, this is slightly technical, but generally, if you're going to raise rates, but another country is not going to raise rates, your currency is going to go up. And so as the Fed started to raise rates, there's this just very bizarre thing where Japan, because of their situation, is like, you know, has a white knuckle grip. They are never going to raise rates as, as far as they can. So there was a the yen huge collapse. move in the yeah. yen versus the dollar. And in fact, yen, I think, you know, we think was by far the most profitable individual trade. But, you know, when people talk about this space, they talk about, you know, well, did you see how much, you know, natural gas went up? It's, it's, it doesn't matter. I mean, doesn't it's it's it's. It's like saying it's like saying, look, if value stocks are going to outperform growth stocks over the next ten years, you don't need to do a lot of brain damage trying to find the one value stock that's going to do better. You can get get value right versus growth, or growth right right versus value, and and that's all. That's always been a truism of hedge funds, and that's why replication, you know, for guys who've been in the industry for a long time, is very obvious to people, because if you were an equity long short manager in two thousand. And you were long small cap value stocks and short large cap growth stocks against it. Your longs went down 40%. Right? If you were a long only manager, you were not looking good, but your shorts went down 80. And so when the world went to hell as an equity long short guy, you you preserved capital. Right? It was a it was a a, a magical outcome, which really set the hedge fund industry off in the next 10 years to a necessary thing in everybody's portfolios. Because anybody staying in 2005 looks at this and says, oh my God, if they did it once, of course they'll do it again. Now, of course, they didn't do it again. Right? 2008 came around. They should have gone down 14 based upon their level of risk. Equities went down about 40, right? So they should have gone down about 14. They went down 2022. It was an embarrassment. And so, so you know, so look, as the, as the hedge fund industry has has, has matured, it's not giving your money to that guy that you met who is super smart, who, you know, you just trust to be this great steward of your capital. Look, the guy, the guy that I work for was, you know, if, if, if somebody said to me, here's a billion dollars, 
give it to one guy and you can't look at it for the next 30 years, you give it to him, right? It's easy. Um, he'll figure it out. But Because you know what? If I have a billion with him, he's got three. <laughs> and, and, and there's no human being on earth who likes to lose money less than that guy, right? So, But how would you know who's going to be the next great guy? You know, how would you know? Because that guy, even that guy has gone through periods of massive underperformance. Because he's in areas that weren't hot at the time. He wasn't picking. So, so look, investing is really hard. Picking managers and the guys who are going to do well is a largely hopeless task on a systematic basis. And so picking the asset classes with any level of confidence that are going to outperform on a going forward. Remember, this is the year of the bond, right? In January, it was a no-brainer that you should be buying bonds because not only because the Fed's going to taper, rates are going to come right back down, and that's going to be the huge tailwind versus the There's going to be a recession. Market. Bonds are going to outperform stocks. Stocks are dead money. And also, if you are in stocks, get or if, if you, even you're, you're, you're overweight stocks, make sure that you're not in large cap growth stocks like oh, Apple or, or <laughs> Microsoft or NVIDIA. You want to own small cap value stocks. Yes. Uh, of course. That that Yeah. Hasn't this been hell for hedge fund managers who are, I guess, I suppose, correct me if I'm wrong, kind of always in aggregate going to be underweight Apple and NVIDIA, right? Be they were. They were until the 2010s. And then they, they they bought it. Actually, so they were very, some some guys, there's there's a group of, of, of hedge funds called the Tiger Cuts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew some of the guys. And in 2014, I was sitting with one of the guys and... Uh, I was looking at his portfolio and his biggest position was Apple. And I was like, like, seriously, like, how do you have an edge in Apple? Like when I, when you and I left business school years ago, why is someone paying you two and 20 to own Apple? To own, to, to own Apple. And, and his argument, and this became, his argument was basically when, when, when wall street analysts look at Apple, they, they don't understand compounding. They don't understand that Apple, even though it's big, can grow 30% a year or whatever the number is. So there'll always there'll always be a point three years out where they start to get it wrong. And and we do these things, we go out much older, we're smarter about it. Anyway, he's basically claiming that they had this edge with it. And they were right. I was super skeptical at the time. But they were right because what they recognized was that those big tech companies were a different breed of animal. They had a you know, I mean, Warren Buffett had, having missed investing in Google, he has this great quote about Google. It's like somebody invented a cash register, put it in San Francisco, and every time anybody goes online anywhere in the world, the cash register rings. Anyway, so back to my point about hedge funds, is they actually did catch that early. Some of the guys caught it early, and they had, and it, the, you know, the, the thing was, it didn't matter whether they owned Microsoft, whether they owned whatever, whatever, whatever. They got, they got the whole category right. These were a different breed. This year? No, no, no. Less is this is in the 2010s. Oh, this okay. is like this is like 2014, 2015. Hedge funds, which had shunned big growth stocks since the early 2010s, started to buy into the idea that these things were these cash flow generation machines, the world of which we had compounders. Yeah, but then in once the crisis hit, and the stocks went up even more, a lot of them said, "Well, okay." Not so funny anymore when these five stocks are now 40% of my portfolio. I'm going to dial them back. And they didn't want to buy Peloton because Peloton was ridiculously expensive and a weak business, but whatever it was. They, and they looked around and they said, oh, Carnival Cruise Lines. 
you know, is down 98%. And this theater music, so, so there was actually a big shift at the margin to value. Mm-hmm. And so thing about replication is like when you're looking at these guys and we do replicate equity long short as a strategy, we have a separate ETF that does that, you know, but what you care about is, are these guys looking at stocks in every day, deciding that those tech stocks are, have just gotten too expensive? It's not worth it anymore. Have they, have they made a move from, I mean, you know, the S&P 500 went up 250% in the 2010s. NASDAQ went up 425%. Europe went up 80% mm-hmm. cumulatively. And emerging markets went up 50. That throws, you talk about theory versus reality. You imagine those like security market lines. Mm-hmm. Oh, if you take more risk, you'll make more money. Uh-uh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, 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 and, and it's not supposed to go on for 10 years like that. So hedge funds started to say, you know, I bet the 2020s, the valuation convergence is going to happen. In a higher interest rate world, the fact that Europe has more, I mean, Europe has underperformed for decades. It has been the cigar butt of asset allocation models, right? And, but it's going to change. It's finally going to change. They're going to come back. So earlier this year, kind of a big trade among hedge funds was this is the revival of Europe. And then they got run over. So, so it's, been, it's been a really, really humbling environment for a lot of people. You can get it right one month. But getting it right all year long, I just I don't know of anybody who got last year right and then turned around and flipped and got this year right. And then uh, even like the, those, those guys who made a fortune on tech stocks, um, you know, they go down 50 and they're up 20 this year. That's not enough. You're still down 40 at two and 20. Yeah, you, you're, t- you're talking about people who they invest in more than Apple. They take, you know, they're investing in unprofitable companies as well. Not just Microsoft Apple. Yeah. There, there was a, a band of hedge funds that I was describing. These Tiger Cubs, yeah, who, yeah, who had huge exposure to, uh, you know, to these large U.S. large the news of the world. Let's put it the that Google's way: of the world, Google, Microsoft, yeah. etc. And 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 they actually pulled money from these, so they didn't capture the rebound. Basically, mm-hmm. they get they get you know pummeled last year. Historically bad numbers last year. Yeah. Then they're like. Okay, and and they even some of the smartest guys in the business actually some of them actually bought into the idea that this was going to be dead money for a long time. Yeah, and then and then and it, look, and I, I mean maybe one or two of them happened to have Nvidia in their portfolio, but the whole Chat GPT thing was was really came out of left field. So uh, when it comes to rebalancing, how often does the the studies, the research suggest that it's optimal for trend following or or managed futures if you have, let's, I mean, you know, 60% bonds, 30, 60% stocks, 30% bonds, 10% managed futures. You have a year like last year where stocks and bonds both had a horrible year, but managed futures you know, did really well. Uh, you Presumably, you take some money out of managed futures, put them into stocks and bonds. How often do should people do that you know, quarterly? Like, what, what does the best practice for that? Do it in the simplest and most straightforward way. Like, don't get cute. Like, the problem with managed futures, right, is, is like you say with tail risk, right? People want tail risk on March 18th, 2020, when it's already up a bajillion percent, right? They didn't want it three months before. And so, um, so I just think you have to be honest with yourself. Am I likely to get the timing right on it? And, and the, you know, the problem is like, like gambling, like day trading, like all these different things, it's fun, right? And so you should have fun with, it's your money. You should have fun with it if you want, but don't fool yourself that 
you're going to know how managed futures is going to do in the next month, even how equity is going to do in the next month. And so for the core of your portfolio, the ethos for the next 10 years should be, I'm going to have a meaningful slug in equities. I'm going to have a meaningful slug in bonds, however you describe it. And I'm going to have a meaningful, but not as large slug in managed futures. And I'm going to basically, that's my bet for the next 10 years, because each one of those things is not static, right? They talk about an equity allocation as static. The S&P 500 is not static. And so the S&P 500, if you, if, you know, we started talking about this idea of beta. We don't know how it's going to do. My guess is it's going to do a lot less well over the next 10 years. Just statistically, you can't keep compounding at 13%. Um, S&P, yeah. S&P 500. It tends to be very tech happy. It probably sounds bad. But, but you know, those are being honest with myself, right? There is, um, I'm not likely to be more than 53% right, that, that I'm going to get that right. So don't bet the house on it. Right. Take take you have companies out there, whether in the Europe, US or whatever, where you got guys running them who are trying to build an increased value. Everybody wants that to happen. You've got bond investors out there who are trying not to lose your money and find the things that earn more money over time. And in managed futures, you've got guys who are trying to identify the opportunities that you're not going to see in buckets one and two. Right. But Andrew, so with uh, managed futures, you do have a positive carry, a return greater than zero which is you know much more than tail risk people can say um, but you also have that that uh, zero zero you know zero correlation or in some cases when assets other assets go down they go up but isn't the whole benefit of that that you can take that net cash is more valuable after assets go down because you can buy them back at lower values i mean that's the tail risk pitch that's why they you know they say oh you so so is it isn't part of the benefit of, of benefit uh, of um, you know managed futures that you take money out of managed futures the year after it did so well to buy stocks and bonds at lower prices. I'm all in favor of rebalancing over time. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. I don't think, I mean, like if it's, it's, um, but all I'm saying is I, don't, I would just say, don't get cute. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no one is going to pick the top on of, of, of assets and, and markets, et cetera. And, and don't even think that you're going to, because that's just going to lead to a lot of brain damage and anxiety and disappointment. If you, if you're going to do rebalancing, which you should do, do it quarterly. Mm -hmm. You know, and and maybe change things at the margin, but but take the the market timing decision away from the view of what you want that portfolio to look like and how you want it to grow and how much risk you want to take over the next ten years, because the rebalancing, if you get cute on the rebalancing side, you can blow up blow up the rest of the equation. I mean, I mean, it, it's it's sort of interesting. Like, so one of the things that I learned from from this guy Seth Klarman years and years and years ago is don't do stuff just to keep busy. Mm -hmm. And so the year before I joined, um, it was sort of funny in that they, they, um, and what year did you join? 1994. Okay. Um, so much, much, much smaller firm, just a little boutique firm. I got recruited by some of my professors at Harvard business school who, who had been actually founders of the business back in the early 1980s. And, uh, and I, I didn't know anything. I didn't know what a hedge fund was. I didn't know who the guy was or whatever, but I went in and, they basically beat the crap out of me for two hours in an interview, asked me all sorts of hard questions, and I thought it was kind of fun. And so I ended up I ended up going to work for them. But but you know, but the thing was like if you're invested in cash, right? If you're it's it's a high hurdle to take money out of them. That's okay. The problem we had in the 2010s was that there was this concerted effort to make sure you didn't hold that safe asset. 
Because it was yielding nothing. Because it was yielding nothing, right? And so that's what I mean by artificially low, right? It shouldn't be, a, a risk asset shouldn't earn zero over time. But but what Seth would say is like, you know, don't buy that stock just because you want to go buy something and you want to feel busy or whatever. Like, you've got to be able to kind of justify it as to what you're not doing. And and so the way that we've approached, what we're sort of known for in the... Um, you know, in this world of where people try to take hedge fund strategies to put them into mutual funds and ETFs is we've, we've only made a few bets over time and they've all worked. And by that, I mean, you're talking about that post. No, no, I'm sorry. I'm talking about me too. like our, our, our firm, our firm today yeah, is, yeah. is that, is that we've, we've, we've identified a handful of strategies where you can do better than actual hedge funds, but in an ETF or in Europe, we do these things in mutual funds but with daily liquidity, low fees, and all sorts of like, like really salient features. And, and, but what we haven't done are stupid things. We didn't go create products that, that, that ended up not working five years later and we had an yeah. egg on our face. And, and you know, the asset- we didn't, we didn't create products that have no real use case. You're creating a product to create a product. Yeah, look, I, I mean, to me, the, to me, the answer is question. Can I do better than hedge funds and offer you daily liquidity? Let you invest $100 as opposed to $5 million in it. Uh, can it be, can I not, you not have a K1? Can you have all of these things that make your life at the margin better and help you with your broader portfolio? There's a huge bias in this business to, to just come up with new things. What's the new thing? What's the new hot idea? Most of our terrible ideas. And you waste so much time. Like, oh, we launched a new product. Well, I mean, you look at the ETF world. It's like everyone's launched a new product, this product, this product, this product. Three years later, five years later, half of them, three quarters of them will be gone. And, and what, what it does for the, for the allocator, for the advisor, is you're bombarded with these ideas. You're bombarded with you know, somebody coming in and saying, oh, you know, we just launched the uh, you know, tail risk fund where we're going to earn 10% a year and then also happen to make 50% a year at the right time. And then here's some hypothetical numbers that we put together. And, and that's you're, you're really much better off just focusing your time and energy on a limited number of things that make sense. Um, and, and, and that's, that's why we're a bit different. I run a quantitatively based firm, but, but we have avoided a lot of the things that people have done in the quant space that sounded great at the time, but then end up looking, looking bad. Like what's an example of something that sounded great in 2013 that just, Oh didn't. my God. So uh, one great, so 2013, um, uh, 2013, 2014, these quants basically came out with things and said, we're going to do what hedge funds do. We're going to do it cheaply. But they did it in this incredibly mind-numbingly complicated ways. It was an area called alternative risk premium. And, um, and the best and the brightest jumped on this. Every investment firm jumped on it. People launched mutual funds. They did all this other yep. stuff. And we looked at it. It sounded great. At back then, you weren't earning much money in your cash. It was supposed to be a 6% return. Not a lot of volatility. No correlation to anything, and it'll be daily liquidity, daily liquid, not too expensive, other stuff like and, that. And you know, can you explain for our audience who you know are human beings and not computers, like what what is the rough t- if, if you you know if yeah. managed futures is long things are going up, short things are going down. What is alternative risk premium? Okay, so these, see, these are these were these were quantitatively based strategies where you were making these long term bets based upon what had happened over the past seventy years. So. Oh, uh, our model says over the past 70 years, value went up. So we're going to we're gonna buy value in short growth. 
disaster. Disaster, right? Uh, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna do this particular, um, uh, you know, currency pair because it's worked better over the past twenty years. And disaster, and, disaster. <laughs> and so, and so, uh, so I was looking at it, and because uh, I was saying, God, I mean, you know, if we could, if it worked, right? Think how great it would be. You could get these, you know, let's say other sources of alpha, whatever. And I kept raising my hand that I was saying, like, like, uh, uh, <laughs> you ever seen the movie Big? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I remember there's a scene where Tom Hanks is. They're talking about this new product or whatever, whatever. And he, he, he kind of reasons like, I don't get it. And they're like, What don't you get? And I was that guy. I was like, I don't get it. Why didn't you do this 20 years ago? If it's such a great idea, who actually started doing it 20 years ago? And past performance is not a predictor of future returns. You know, I mean, I I put up things on Twitter all the time, and you know, oh, the last time the unemployment rate up went this time on a historical basis. This is what happened 12 months later. I'm just some guy on Twitter. I'm not putting people's, you know what I mean? Like I, I, the standard is, is high enough for me to, it's an interesting thought, but you know, things change. Regime, regime shifts change. Before 1997 or 1993, you tell me, I mean, stocks and bonds traded uh, in line with each other. It was only a kind of a recent phenomenon that stocks and bonds, you know, bonds were a hedge for stocks. So things change I, all the time. So look, look, a lot of academic finance. Rising rates are good for banks, right? Oh, okay. Nope. You know, sorry. So, so, no, no, no. I mean, so I mean, a lot of academic finance is insane. Yeah. Okay. You have guys, first of all, think about the incentive structure. You, Jack, you just got your PhD or you're getting your PhD at University of Chicago. It's time to write your thesis. And you work on it for six months, you don't find anything interesting. That's not your thesis. You need to turn the dials some more. Okay. <laughs> you, you weren't looking at sunspots. You need to incorporate sunspots. Oh, you know what? And, and so what happens is the whole academic finance business is this truly insane game of backtesting, right? So I wrote on like the value factor, right? So, so I, I, like I worked for one of the great value investors, the value factor, as people thought about at the time was dead at the time, the, those, the, this mythical company that was trading its stock market capitalization was less than its cash at the time didn't exist. Not because 1994, 1994. Yeah, not. But this is two years, by the way, after the Nobel winning prize paper from from Eugene Fama and Ken French came out, basically talking about the value factor. And what they did was amazing. But what they described was the past. And by the time they published it, the world had already changed. I knew this because I was kind of nerdy. I almost went into the PhD program at Harvard Business School because I thought, you know, God, it'd be really fun to study all this stuff. Look at all these like, you know, you can study seven years of the markets and find all these interesting truisms. And, and what I realized very, very quickly was that it wasn't that value investors wouldn't have bought it. They hadn't changed. It's that they were, they were, they, the stock didn't exist anymore because LBOs, the same guy who was looking at a stock and saying, wait a second, it's, 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 it, this is trading less than its cash. Why don't we just borrow money, buy the company, take the cash, give it out. We'll have a company for free. Yeah, uh, strategic acquirers did the same thing. The whole M and A business, so M and A's, uh, leverage buyouts, all this stuff happened. They were all so all the companies were gone. Anyway, so so alternative risk. Yeah, so, 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 so the Warren Buffett stocks that you know he got rich in the 1950s with his clients, those no longer existed as value stocks. Companies that you could buy that literally had more cash in the bank than the market cap. So now instead, it's those value stocks no longer existed. So instead, a value stock was just something that traded with the price to earnings ratio of five. But there's a reason it, it trades like price to earnings of five. It had a lot of problems, probably, right? So, you know? so what, what happened is actually there was this um, this this pivotal shift in the um, in the value investing world. 
in that they gave up on the buy, well, let's buy cigar butts with a margin of safety because they didn't exist. So what they started to become, they would say like, we're going to buy good companies, but at reasonable prices. But but the way that they would calculate that was to say, what if KKR bought it? What if Carlisle bought it? What's the analysis that they would do? Well, the analysis that they do is you model it out. We have computers now. You can build an Excel spreadsheet and you can say, if the cash flow grows like this, and you discount it back and come up with the cost of capital, you can, you can decide, ah, oh, the stock should be worth 20 today and it's trading at 14. Therefore, it's cheap. But when you do that, right, when you're looking at the company, at the balance sheet of the company, these terrible company, but with lots of good assets on it, mm-hmm. you don't care about management. You know they're bad. Yeah, <laughs> because if you're talking to them, they're terrible at their jobs. The the here you care because these guys have to make wise decisions and grow. And what you know, do they take the money? Do they buy that stock? Do they go buy another? Stu- you know, try to build another stupid factory. And so, so the value business changed in the 1990s from an asset based business to a companies based business, and. And anyway, that that had sort of profound implications. But when I looked at this space, the alternative risk premium space, I was talking to a bunch of guys who are much better quantitatively than I am with terrible, unrealistic business judgment. Mm-hmm. Because they were basically saying, you know, I, I remember talking to one guy and he said, and he said, well, the underlying strategy itself is not really interesting, but we found a way it only goes up when the S&P, we, we found a way, basically, we know when the, we've came up with a signal with the, when the S&P is going up or down. Uh, and, and we know it's going to go up or down over the next week. Uh, that's when we're going to invest in the strategy. And I'm like, if you if you if you think you know when the S and P is going to go up or down in the next week, why are you bothering with this? My friend, you have a much better career opportunity just going out and and managing size money. So, but look, I mean, that's it's it, it's what makes this business fun. It changes a lot over time. You know, you're dealing with human beings who are we're all trying to make good decisions in what we do um uh but um but you know there are lessons you can learn to 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 avoid making the big mistakes and a lot of the asset allocation business a lot of the you know things is 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 people making um every now and then you could look at things and say like buying a 10-year double a double b rated bond at a one and a half percent 10-year yield when the company was not so great back in 2021, unless you were forced to buy it because you had some bucket that said, I must mm-hmm. own this certain amount of double A bonds. That's one you should walk past. Or the 10 year treasury. I mean, the real, the real overvalue thing was the, was, was the risk-free rate, not, not necessarily the credit spread. Maybe you're right. Yeah. I mean, credit, credit spreads were tight, but the thing is though, if you were saying that in 2021, and you were saying it in, you probably say in 2019, and you were probably saying in 2017. Yeah. The, the people who were better bench, you were like, oh, Andrew, you've been saying this for years. Right, right. So, yeah. so, so you, 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 you may be right. But, but look, I mean, so, look, sometimes, I mean, it's, I, I think this, like, just be humble, I mean, about this yeah. and, and, and spread your bets and, and think through. One, one guy described us, um, he was talking about kind of our approach to hedge funds. And, and he says, he said, I don't know whether to say you guys are, it's like, it's either common sense or the thinking man's approach, because you're not saying you have the answers to everything, but, but you can, you're pretty good at figuring out when 
the odds are stacked against you in a very, very meaningful way. And not doing it, because we're not working at a bank where our job is to crank out products. Mm-hmm. We're not working at a quant firm where we have to like, you know, come up with the next new product this year. Or we heard somebody else is doing a product and we're going to copy and launch, launch it. It's, it's, you know, we want to be known for the guys where we're going to tell you exactly what we're going to do and what we're going to try to do. And we're going to explain to you why we think it's a good idea. And we hope you're our, you're our client today. And in 10 years, we're doing, we're doing exactly the same thing in that fund. And, and, and you're happy with the outcome. And that's, that's not, that's a very rare experience in for, for, for allocators because they spend so much time jumping on the thing that just looked great. Then it's hugely disappointing. And now they've got to decide, do I sell it? Do I get out? Mm-hmm. How do I explain it to my clients? Um, and, and all of those, all of those dynamics are just, they're, they're just inefficient and costly. You know, for, if you're an advisor, you should be spending your time. Um, you know, you want to, that's what I describe this thing about like, like you want to be able to, make an allocation and for it just to work. And, and, and that often means simpler. It means more straightforward. Mm-hmm. It means, it means sort of a common sense approach. So we're, we're, we're a very strange hybrid in that we are, we have, you know, amazing modeling and mathematical expertise, but we know when not to believe it. Yes. You, uh, have a really good process, but you're very unambitious in what you try to do because you've seen a lot of people, you know, try and lift that 2000 pound weight and it not go so well. Yeah. And look, like you think, I mean, there are really, really smart guys in quantitative finance who have really mediocre and sometimes horrible performance over time. But, but, if, but if you think about how would you get comfortable with a quantitative strategy, right? The longer you look back, the more comfortable you're going to be. Do we really think that the lessons of the 1950s are really relevant today? Or that the, the dispersions or whatever, the, 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 um, the, the, mis, the, the mispricings can be corrected on a time horizon that is sufficient. In other words, yeah, okay, value is going to work by 2030. I mean, if you invest in value from 2030 to 2050 a, t- a thousand basis points a year of outperformance but it's like can you wait that long you know but but it's so but this is actually cuz it's sort of an interesting point because because you know you say value right yeah you cannot find two quants who agree how to define it price to book price to earning the ebitda but but think about the bizarreness of that right we are describing a permanent truth of the market but we have to change our definition of the permanent truth of the market every two years. That should scare the daylights out of you. It's and and so so I think like like some of the questions that you 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 know like if you're if you're an advisor and somebody's coming in and showing you some hot product, the first question you should ask is that's great, that's really interesting. Show me every product you've done in the space and what you thought was your best product three years ago, and what you thought was your best product five years ago. It's a tough test. Well, it's because yeah. because because the business good. Good stuff. the business is built to sell hot dots. Yep. Right. That you're going to have a firm that's got six products, and you're going to only hear about the one that's going up, because and and, and so, often six of the products, three of them are positioned one side of the boat, the other the other side of the boat. So mathematically, there's going to be one of them that it looks like everyone's a genius. Right. Right. And so and and and, but like I mean I, I've written about like the the asset management industry is designed to fool you 
into buying things with unsustainable performance. They're called hot dots, right? Hot, and more okay. hot dots. I thought you said and, hot dogs. Okay, hot dots. Hot dots. Sense. And yeah, yeah. Morningstar does great analysis where they basically do the Magellan okay. analysis you've described, where where the vast majority of money always comes in at the wrong time. Um, that's not the asset manager's fault, by the way. Like in general, it's not the portfolio manager's fault. It's the it's the structure of the industry, right? It's the yes, and, and I think it's it's human nature. You know, I mean, I just noticed people. If there's someone who's a bear, they're known as a bear. People, the demand for people to for me to interview that person is at its highest when the market is at its bottom, right? And they they hate that person when the market's at its top. You know, or, or you had a big rally like like right now. And if I were to interview them now, they'd say. Jack, why would you have this person He's on? Wrong. When He's in October, wrong. <laughs> they love they would love love for me to have them. So I think it's it's you know it's it's everyone's fault. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's everyone and no one's fault. The thing, the thing is structurally the industry. Like if you want to run an asset management firm and you go with one fund, okay, you're not hiring a lot of people to do that because if you have a rough six months, you have a lot of people sitting around, you know, playing cards, expensive. So, so it's rational for you to do Farley one through six. And, and, and then you can hire more people because you always have a product to feed them, right? That's good from a business perspective for asset managers. And, but just be aware of it, right? So, so somebody comes in and tells you, this is a great product. Say, I want to see everything you're doing. And there are people that we compete with who have one really good product. And, and it just, it's, it's an awkward question. You know, and a lot of the, you know, the human dynamics of this industry is uh, one of, I know a guy who's one of the kind of like leading luminary hedge funds, um, uh, hedge fund managers. And I've known him, you know, for, for over two decades, almost three decades at this point, he's really unpleasant to talk to because he, um, the niceties of just letting things go is not wired into him. He is on the front. He is on the balls of his feet. So, um, you know, uh, you know, yeah. So anyways, I, I, I've rented this place and we're going up there. Why'd you choose that? Did you compare that to something else? What is it that you think about it? Like it's, you're just like, whoa, whoa. He's always, like, they're always comparing something. Yeah. It's always, right. is it better? Why is that better than this? What is it? But that's what advisors need to do when people come in to sell them, they're coming to sell you something because they are trying to make money off it. A mm. quant comes and, and, and writes a paper and sends you their paper about how they found some new magical trade. They are not doing this for the sake of humanity. They are probably consulting for an asset manager. They work at an asset manager. This is not, this is not altruism. This is, you know, this is hardcore capitalism. And, and so, and that's, great in a lot of ways because they are motivated to find new opportunities to 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 find new strategies find other ways to make money like we want people to be doing that but you as an allocator you know as an advisor as an investor just should be prepared to ask some awkward questions yep and you know and those questions are like if this sounds great why didn't you do it 10 years ago what did you do ten years ago? Like, in, and then this is and this is what's strange about replication is that is that replication is a very strange strategy, and that we hope we're doing exactly the same thing in ten years that we're doing today. Like, we want it, we want it, we want to find a way to do it well. Now, it's not the hedge funds themselves will do different things, but the way that we identify what the, what we're doing and copy and cheaply is 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 
you know, the, the best outcome for us is, is we found the solution that works. And, and because then 10 years from now, you can say, what were you doing 10 years from now? And we say, we're doing exactly the same thing. But think how strange it is when a quant comes to you and says, we've introduced all these new changes in what we're doing. We found a new way to invest in it. Well, they only do that when it's not working. So, so okay, so this is your triage, right? And the response should not be wonderful. You know, you, you, you bandaged the... <laughs> <laughs> you know, you bandaged, you've lost your, your right leg from the knee down and you bandaged it. The, the question should be, how did you lose the... Yeah, or you're, you're making this change so that your back test, which look amazing a year ago, still looks amazing. Right. And so, 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 look, I mean, this, but it's, you know, it's an exciting dynamic business, but I just think it's, I think you can avoid, you can avoid a lot of issues when you just come into these conversations with the skepticism and are willing to, yeah. Ask questions that are a little bit outside of what people normally do. I believe in trend following back test and that if you have a back test and it's working, keep doing it. If you have a back test and it stops working, just, just stop, just stop doing it. But I, the people who, you know, have lost a lot of money over the ages, I, I think I've, you know, they just have one narrative of, Oh, this has always worked from 1950 to 2019. So it's going to work now. And right, well, I mean, and but then also think about the dynamics, right? So I wrote a lot about Kathy Wood when she was yep. when she was going through, and and I'm, I'm much more sympathetic to Kathy Wood than 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 I think a lot of uh, people. I think you had George Noble on on on, yep. on your podcast once. I mean, the people people are very visceral and crazy. To me, the thing about about um, uh, about Ark and Kathy Wood was that um, she can't change her mind, right? Kathy, do you think inflation is going to come back? No, it's going to be disrupted away, right? Yeah, and uh, you, you're never going to, Kathy Wood, she's never going to sell the technology stocks and buy coal stocks. Number one, that's not who she is. Number two, her clients, that's not what she's hired to do. Right. And so, she would so, not be doing her job. It, yeah. Exactly, right? So, yeah. so, so don't ask her opinion on inflation. Because inflation is unequivocally bad for her portfolio. This is why. This is why you know, Andrew, I so I so rarely you know interview people who obviously you want to talk to people who have um what, you know, skin in, skin in the game. But if I interview someone who, who they are the CEO of, of an oil company over a copper mine, and I ask them what do they think about the price of copper is going to, it's like yeah, I think the price of copper is going to go up. There's a shortage. Surprise, surprise. You know, if you interview someone whose their whole life is about you know disruption of tech stocks, they're not going to they're not worried about the Fed raising rates. No, and and and, yeah. and and it's not their fault. So, but it, it, you know, it's like if you ask a, you know, you go to Fox News, you know who's going to win the election. You go to CNN, yeah. you know who's going to win the election, right? It's not. It's and and um, it's really interesting about 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 Kathy Wood and Arc, which was that when she outperformed massively from uh, for a number of years, and 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 they they you know they described her in magazine articles, talked to her about as this uh, you know sort of the new goddess of investing and the modern day sort of George Soros, etc. And then when she went down. There was a really interesting heuristic flip. Yep. In that, in that, oh no, no, all disruptive tech stocks are going down. She's representative of, of, of disruptive tech stocks going down. So it's not her fault. Right. But and yeah. in a sense, she became the theme. Yes. Right. And 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 that's a really, really, really bad way of looking at it if you're trying to think about is this person going to if you want the theme of course you should buy kathy wood or you should buy somebody who's doing doing something similar but um it's the but 
you're, you're, but, but you're, you're, but you're making a bet on the theme. That's actually the. I mean, it, looking at her as a theme is the right way to look at it. But the the characterization of this alpha generator, because the theme is doing well, um, is like you don't compare the Nasdaq in the 2010s to emerging market stocks and say you're a genius alpha generator. Um, mm -hmm. But but what it does is it gives people, you know, people need a reason not to sell. And and when people have 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 made a commitment to a fund, it's not. It, it, it's their problem now if it doesn't do well. And, and so, so, so Arc had all these firms that had thrown their weight behind her as the genius. And so, and people in the media, not, not myself, but, but yeah. And when it starts to go badly, there are haters out there, but the people, she didn't have redemptions. Yes. Right? How could you not have redemptions when you have walked into the propeller and stood there smiling? You know, and, 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 and she didn't. And it's because um, the people who are invested with her had bought into it, right? And, and so it takes years of underperformance for people have to have, have to then be able to say, okay, we're going to switch to something else. We're going to do it. So, so a lot of the stickiness of this business, and again, we started this whole conversation about like, you know, about what makes hedge funds different is that by and large, the average hedge fund is much better at changing its mind at the right time then because they can and, the, and and most of the time in most hedge funds clients expect them to do that that they don't expect them to be making money in five years because they're not it's the 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 category is this dynamic asset class the category is not thematic disruptive tech stocks or or or, or xyz and um and it doesn't work all the time i mean it's not and it's not and and when you layer lots and lots of high fees on it and the markets get more competitive this is what i mean about you have huge headwinds you know, you're like every time you increase, every time you throw in one of these other issues, your, your, your probability of generating good returns goes down cumulatively. You don't really have much of a shot, but, um, uh, but it is this, um, uh, it's this, you know, it, it, it's, 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 it's trying to basically think about the, the opportunities to make money in the context of a broader industry and, 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 and where you can trust the advice. You can trust the advice. So when we were looking at this move from gross to value stocks, I trust a hedge fund who loved when he says value is coming back, but he mm -hmm. loved yep. growth two years ago. I yeah. trust his opinion Me a too. lot more than Kathy Woods, um, or and, someone who's loved value for or somebody's loved, oh, yeah, 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 or yeah, or you know GMO or something, you know, who's yeah. who's 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 been in the trade on the wrong side but for years and years. So yeah, and if you, you know, if you talk to someone who you know, I, I have interviewed folks like this who their fund is owning oil stocks. Like, don't expect them to be bearish on the price of oil. You no. know what I mean? Like, and that, and that's not their fault. That, that's who they are. You know, and and and, and they went into the industry, right? This is and this people is should things. expect that. They're, they're human beings, right? Yeah. So so so, if you go into a job picking hedge funds, you probably like it, right? You don't want to do some replication robot dog. That might be good for people who want to put something in their portfolio and be happier in 10 years than they would otherwise be. But your job is to pick funds. You don't go back and say, by the way, I don't want to pick funds anymore. I'm going to put it all into this little robot dog of a strategy, this simple cheap robot ETF and, and, and just leave it there. So those, and you should just know that, you know, you should know that if you have your money with an advisor, um, ask them. So why do I have so many different asset classes? You know, how do you think about, do I really need 25 different line items in this? Do I really need four funds in this category? They may have really great answers for it. 
but but you should feel it's your money and you should feel empowered to ask these kinds of questions. I mean, in a sense, our whole business, the other thing that this guy was telling you about kind of like kind of come up with a, a one sentence for a business. He said, in a sense, what you guys have done differently is you just keep asking questions. And 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 when you get these kind of canned responses, if if it does, if you don't feel it, it doesn't make sense to you, you keep asking the same question, which is back to back to big. I don't get it. What do you mean you don't get it? Like I don't get it how you think that for the next 70 years, the world is going to look like the past 70 years and that you guys didn't figure this out 10 or 20 years ago. And yeah. And the, the next 70 years is going to be a mirror image of the past 70 years. It's as inane a worldview as it's going to be like the present all the time for the next 70 years. Andrew, I should let you go by. So you, you made a lot of interesting points about beta. You said Kathy Wood, don't look to her for alpha, but it's again, alpha is relative to what? So did the Kathy Wood factor that didn't really exist, but I mean, you know, it, it did exist, but it was not classified as such. And then now you have the moonshot CTF of unprofitable growth, rich valuation, disruptive tech, however you want to call it. Uh, and then also the, the fact that you said, you know, her, her uh, clients haven't left her. And again, we're talking about Kathy Wood instead of, it's about, it's about the ETF, but you know, the money weighted returns are far, far worse than actually just if you oh, invest. They're, 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 they're terrible. They're terrible. Right. But again, that's not her fault. Right? I, I agree. With you. I mean, that's not, it's, it, look, it's, it was her fault when she was saying, buy now because we're going to go up 40% a year, right? That's, that's, that, that's crossing a line. That's promising because she was desperately trying to stem outflows. Everything was an argument, but this is what asset managers do. Every, everything's an argument. That's why you should remain invested. The, back to your point, though, like the, the, there's a circularity to it, right? Well, my value guy, do you want your value guy to outperform value stocks? Mm-hmm. Or do you want your value guy to outperform the S&P 500? Because you think value stocks are going to do well, and there's always a benchmark that performs so badly that your fund will have beaten the index exactly. if you choose that index. Exactly, yeah. you can jump over it on your knees. Like, <laughs> oh, I beat the I beat the cruise line index in March. Right. You know, great. But again, it, look, that just, that just goes back to the dynamics of this industry. Everyone's trying to sell you something. Yeah, right? I am. I am trying to. You know, I get on the phone with people, but I'm also very open about it. And I and and because we led with with you know with our money we we're trying to solve something for ourselves and so we would invite you to come join us we think we think we have found better ways of doing a lot of this stuff but we recognize it's not right for everybody yeah well what, what, what you're doing is very very interesting Andrew. final question before i let you go is you do have a peek into what hedge funds are doing on the, on the long short side as well as managed futures and you've got a whole process how you do that we're not going to have time to, to get into that but you, you do know what what your know, folks folks are doing uh, what are hedge, how are hedge funds positioned right now on China? Because I have to say that that is the most unloved, or if it's not, it should be the most unloved asset in the world right now. Because I mean, literally over the past ten years, the stock market has been flat right. as economic growth has you know skyrocketed. So I know a lot of people who've been oh everyone who's been bullish on China has gotten burned. Um, but how are folks positioned now? Because I mean, it could be the ultimate contrarian opportunity. Obviously, the pain could continue for years, if not decades. So we, we don't we don't have good visibility on China positions per se. But I can tell you that it was China was adored three years ago, four years ago by certain, particularly tech focused hedge funds, and I think they got slammed. I don't. They didn't see the regulatory changes that came and the punishment of the sort of like, like, you know, sharp reversal of this kind of open ec- economic system. Look, my guess is that any contrarian guy worth his salt is spending a lot of time looking at Chinese companies right now, precisely for the reason you describe. you know, you there, there, there is proverbial blood in the streets for investing in China. It is uninvestable. 
the macroeconomic situation couldn't look worse. Um, uh, uh, but but there will be guys like the guy that I started my career working for who's trying to find dollars for 25 cents. And, and, and he's set up where he doesn't need it to converge tomorrow. He can hold it for 10 years. And his clients want him to do that. Yep, China is cheap, uh, cheap for a reason, perhaps, but it is. Well, Andrew, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for Good. joining us. Uh, people can find you on Twitter at Andrew Beer One, uh, your, your firm, uh, DBI.co. Thanks for uh, joining, sharing your insights, and thanks for everyone for watching. Thanks so much. Great talking to you. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at Blockworks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and Blockworks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.